0: one of you guys leave your pencil up here? If you're missing a pencil, it's up here. Good morning. Happy new semester. Yes, it's very exciting. A quick reminder for you guys, uh, this coming Monday is our annual MLK Day on... There is a service project opportunity in the morning. You have received an email from Student Development about that. I would like to encourage you uh, to participate. Um, It's a great way to get off the mountain and to serve our neighbors well. Uh, I'm so excited that for whichever hall has the highest percentage of participation, I will deliver pizza to your hallway. So please... Brothers and sisters sign up and get a presidential pizza delivery. Uh, in addition to that service project's opportunity in the morning, uh, which we really would love for you guys to participate in uh, two p m on monday we 've got a lecture by Howard Brown, who is the pastor of Christ Central Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, that lecture is entitled "A Call to public spiritual health care there's a Q and a afterwards. Uh, you want to come to that too. Howard is a member of our Board of Trustees, wonderful pastor and brother who's been involved in a lot of racial reconciliation work in Charlotte, so uh, don't miss that. And then last thing on Monday, 8 p.m., is the Porter's Gate concert. Need to clarify, there was a minor... uh, error on Monday. Um, you do not have to reserve a seat in advance if you are a student. You simply need to show up with your Scott's card to get in. So please come out Monday night, 8 p.m. Um, I'll tell you that the, they will be uh, singing songs or performing some of the songs from their new album, Neighbor Songs. So morning is an opportunity to serve your neighbors. Evening is an opportunity to hear neighbor songs. I think it's a, it's a heartwarming theme for me. Uh, when I was first dating my wife, we live relatively close to each other in Chicago, and so the guys at work would say, what are you doing after work? And I'd say, I'm going to hang out with my neighbor. And, and then she came to visit me in the office one day, and they said, oh, we see. Why? You're hanging out with your neighbor. Okay. I'm going to read for you guys this morning a couple uh, short <laughs> passages of Scripture uh, to get us started. Okay. Um, from Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1. So Paul writes to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the time you've spent sitting in chapel this year, you'll likely know that it's our hope that in the chapel program, uh, we will encounter Jesus together uh, in community. I want to talk about one dimension of that encounter today. Um, I suspect that some of you may be tempted to think of encountering Jesus in pietistic terms. Uh, that, you, that is, you might think of encountering Jesus in terms of individual religious experience, personal devotion, uh, your personal and individual relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, personal piety and devotion as an aspect, an important aspect of our encounter with Jesus. Uh, it's also the case That we here at Covenant believe that our encounter with Jesus is not only about devotion and piety. Uh, Our encounter with the God of the universe and the reconciler of all things has implications for every aspect of our lives. It has implications for our work, for our play, for what we consume, for our public life, for the life of our minds, for how we think and what we love. Here at covenant college our encounter with jesus matters specifically for our work as scholars uh, for the work that our faculty do in their research and writing and in their teaching and mentoring and also for the work that our students do Uh, students at covenant are after all all called the little c uh, to work as apprentice scholars in their time on lookout mountain you all are called Uh, to the demanding work of bringing under the guidance and tutelage of your professors biblical truth to bear on whatever field of study you're pursuing. Uh, You're called to the work of embracing common grace insights with spirit-led discernment. Uh, You're called to the work of critiquing fallen structures and patterns in the world. You're called to the work of exploring the wonders of God's creation. You're called to the work of responding faithfully to the havoc wreaked on this world by sin. And that's not often easy work. Um, And it may have moments that require extra measures of self-discipline because doing things like memorizing Greek declensions or chemical formulas uh, sometimes doesn't feel as meaningful as we might want it to. But uh, it's work that's shaped in profound ways by the faith in Jesus Christ and his reconciling work in this world that we all share. One way in which our faith shapes our shared scholarly calling is through the manner in which the virtues that we seek to embrace and cultivate as a Christian academic community inform our approach to scholarship. Uh, I won't go into those at length right now, but suffice it to say that Christian virtues such as humility, self-denial, and charity, and friendship have a profound impact on the way we together pursue our scholarly task at Covenant College. Another way our faith shapes our scholarly calling is through the very content of that faith. Um, the things that we believe, the propositions that we know to be true, uh, these influence in critical ways our pursuit of our intellectual work, which in turn shapes our lives. Uh, so sometimes the content of our faith demands that we adopt uh, certain beliefs or positions on contemporary issues, uh, things like marriage and human sexuality and the sanctity of human life and care for orphan, orphans and widows and aliens, and you can think of other ways in which biblical truth guides our thinking and our acting at other times, rather than the content of our faith requiring us to adopt certain positions, the content of our faith demands that we adopt certain approaches to the scholarly work to which we've been called. Um, we might call these intellectual frameworks or intellectual habits. And so to introduce one of those habits, I want to invoke a famous figure from medieval history. Uh, some of you maybe. Uh, have heard of Peter Abelard, who was a renowned, uh, perhaps notorious, theologian and Parisian university master in the early 12th century, so uh, early 1100s. Most people who know of Abelard know of him because of his tragic love affair with the beautiful and exceedingly intelligent Heloise, um, their love story, gruesome as it is in some places, it's worth reading if you haven't done so. Abelard was, however, better known in his own day for his brilliance and for his sometimes controversial theological work. Um, I don't want to get into an evaluation of his orthodoxy today. Uh, there are good reasons to be suspicious of some of his positions. But I do want to take as a starting point one of his early theological treatises, uh, which bears the simple title, uh, Sick et Non." Um, those of you who took Latin high school... Might recognize that, that title translates to "thus and not," or uh, more simply, "yes and no." Uh, so, in this treatise, which many many scholar- scholars regard as an introductory logic uh, textbook, Abelard juxtaposes or sets next to each other 158 seemingly contradictory statements from the Church Fathers. Now, he makes it clear in his preface that he's concerned to help students grapple with the multiple meanings that can attach to a single turn. And you guys know how that works, right? Um, I was talking with my son about this recently, uh, because one morning he was telling me that he couldn't go to school because he was sick, and then later that day he was asking me if I had seen a, a touchdown catch on ESPN because it was sick. And I was like, I don't think sick means the same thing in those two different situations. So Abelard's treatise, Sick at known, Yes and No, got Abelard in trouble, um, since it seemed to leave unresolved some tensions in Christian theology and again like I said I'm not interested in passing judgment on Abelard or on wrestling through each of those couplings uh, of seemingly contradictory assertions uh, but I think about his treatise whenever I hear covenant students uh, laugh about hearing a lot of both and assertions from their professors uh, any of you guys heard professors say both and I see a few hands going up I think it depends also on which department you're in you might hear it more than some others um I sometimes think that both and could be the B and the A to the little C, big C of calling. Um, And then we could put together sort of a complete covenant-specific pedagogical alphabet. Uh, We could whittle your entire covenant college education down to just 26 characters, which would make it easy to memorize for uh, the big cumulative final exam that's coming at the end of your time here. That's not really happening, by the way. Um, It it strikes me that while these oft-repeated phrases that we have, both and, big C, little c, uh, which are kind of our own cultural shorthand, are funny, there really is a big and important idea uh, represented by that little both and phrase. Um, And that was the same idea that Peter Abelard, as a Christian theologian and philosopher, was driving at way back in the early 12th century. Um, There are some assertions to which we uh, can say, sic et non, or yes and no. Um, or rather, there are some couplings of seemingly contradictory assertions, uh, truths that seem to be at odds with one another, to which we can say, well, both and. Um, Abelard himself teed up some of these for us. Uh, his sixth pairing of contradictory assertions comes under the title, quod sit Deus tripartitus et contra, uh, or in English, um, that God is tripartite, and against that assertion. Uh, so, more simply put, Abelard was asking his students: um, Does God have three parts? And the answer was yes and no, um, depending, of course, of course, on how you define the term. So, we would we would say uh, in modern English: Is God one or three? Uh, Deuteronomy six four tells us, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord our God, the Lord is one." And Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Uh, Jesus tells us that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, So our answer to the question, is God one or three, uh, on this very basic level, would be both and, uh, depending on how you define the terms. And if you're interested in diving more into one substance, three persons and Trinitarian theology, um, you should stop by Sanderson and hit up the theologians there. So that's one example of an apparent contradiction, uh, one and three, that we as Orthodox Christians embrace. Um, we've developed a sophisticated theological framework to help us rightly understand the nature of the Trinity, uh, but we're also ready to admit that there exists a deep and profound mystery um, at the core of this remarkable, eternal, omnipotent one and three being, who is our God, um, and we're we're good with that. Uh, theologians sometimes refer to these challenging juxtapositions as antinomies. Uh, So here's what evangelical theologian J.I. Packer uh, has to say about them. He writes, The whole point of an antinomy in theology at any rate is that that it is not a real contradiction, though it looks like one. It is an an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. What should one do, then, with an antinomy? Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. Put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp, complementary to each other. So I want to suggest today, first, and I think fairly uncontroversially, there are a number of these apparent contradictions or antinomies or paradoxes in the Christian faith. They're an unavoidable feature of our finite experience of an infinite God. But second, I want to suggest that our embrace of these seemingly contradictory propositions, these both-and statements of the Christian faith, shapes, and ought to shape, the way we understand the world around us. They ought to predispose a a particular way of thinking about the world in which we live, uh, and hence the particular way of living in this world. Um, For this world was created by the very same triune God who presents these truths to us, um, and the people who occupy this world were made in his image. So I've already mentioned one that the God's at the same time three and one. Another apparent, another apparent paradox, one uh, that sticks out from my days as a student here at Covenant, is the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Um, is God sovereign? Scripture tells us that He turns the king's heart whichever way He pleases in Proverbs twenty-one, and that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father Matthew ten. Okay, so is man responsible for his actions? Uh, well, Scripture clearly tells us that he is. Each of us will give an account for our actions someday. That's from Romans 14. Each of us is called to respond to the good news of the gospel. So which is it? Is God sovereign or is man responsible? Well, we would say the answer is both and. Um, I remember this tension particularly well uh, because of the way that my doctrine professor here at Covenant College, uh, Henry Kravendam, otherwise known as Dr. K., Uh, represented it mathematically. Uh, He was quite fond of saying, in his wonderful Dutch accent, that God is 100% sovereign and man is 100% responsible. So he would say, 100% plus 100% equals 100%. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if the math works, uh, but scripture certainly teaches us that that's the case. If you read the book of Exodus, it's remarkable how Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, keeps choosing to deny Moses' call to release the Israelites, and how God makes clear that he is hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, and how Pharaoh is judged for his decision not to let people's, God's people go. So at first blush, first blush, that doesn't make sense to my finite mind, um, how those two things can work together, uh, and yet they do. Uh, Consider also uh, the nature of the very scriptures that teach us these truths. Um, From our limited human perspective, uh, we want the Bible to be either divine or human. Uh, But the biblical authors themselves, as well as the long tradition of those who've gone before us in the faith, acknowledge that the Bible is an unerring divine book that was written by human authors. Um, As human authors, Uh, Men brought their particular cultural heritage, their perspectives, their emphasis, uh, their tendencies to the writing of Scripture. And yet the books that they wrote are God's word. Um, So let me say that again. The books that these human authors wrote, with all their personal peculiarities, are God's word without error. Um, Now, it's a truth that can get pushed too far uh, in either direction. uh, But you only have to look at the Gospels to see that principle illustrated pretty clearly. Uh, you've got four separate accounts of the life of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, four different authors, each with his own uh, concerns and his own themes. Now, Matthew's concerned to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Anointed One who would re- redeem his people. Uh, Mark wants to present Jesus' universal call to discipleship. Uh, Luke is concerned to authenticate the history of Jesus and to make clear that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. John wants to emphasize Christ's divinity, uh, his status as the divine logos, uh, to make sure that his readers know that Jesus Christ is God. Each of these men with their own histories and proclivities um, has an authorial intent, and yet in God's sovereignty, uh, these personal histories and personal predispositions are employed to provide for us the very whole picture of Christ that we need for our salvation. There are a host of other truths taught in scripture where we might be inclined to want, we might be inclined to want an either-or decision, and instead God is calling us to embrace uh, a both-and coupling, a, a duplex truth. Um, what's the crux of the gospel call? Is it to repent of your sins, to confess your failor, failures and to turn from them, or is it to believe, to place your trust in the Christ who died for you? Um, it's both-and. Uh, throughout the gospels, Jesus calls men and women both to repent and to believe. Uh, Did Jesus die to save individuals or to save his church? Well, Jesus died to save both individuals and his church. Um, The universal body is composed of all believers. Is God's kingdom already here or not yet here? Well, his kingdom is both now and not yet. Perhaps most significantly for an institution, a covenant college that has Christ at the center of its motto Um, Was Jesus Christ God or man? Our natural inclination would be to regard those as mutually exclusive categories, right? Uh, God is the creator. Man is the creature. Uh, God is infinite and eternal. uh, Man is finite and mortal. Um, I mean, how how astonishing is it Uh, and how intellectually challenging is it that Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? Theologians have done their best to develop categories based on biblical truth, like the passages I read at the outset, that help us to understand something that really is incomprehensible. Um, Even with those efforts, there remains a profound mystery in the reality that the eternal, almighty God took on human flesh. Uh, Great Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield uh, wrote that this conjoint humanity and deity within the limits of a single personality presents serious problems to the human intellect in its attempts to comprehend it in itself or in its activities. And then Warfield went on to assert that we cannot afford to lose either the God in the man or the man in the God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer us. If we believe that, if we cling to that glorious truth of the God-man, then what sort of intellectual complexities must we be willing to accept in other areas of our endeavor? Um, Sometimes there are real deep mysteries in these antinomies that we as finite creatures just can't reconcile to our mind's satisfaction. Other times we simply need to reframe the question uh, or define terms more carefully. In either case, uh, these sorts of tensions in the Christian faith, and tensions are not always a bad thing, should develop in us a comfort level with and even a disposition to see complex and multidimensional answers to difficult questions in our world. Um, at a general level, the contents of biblical truth, the existence of these antinomies, these both and realities, should incline us to anti reductionism. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, and maybe some philosophy majors do, uh, there exists a philosophical debate. It's actually probably more of a philosophical stalemate with occasional skirmishes. Uh, between those of a reductionist bent and those of an anti-reductionist bent. Um, It's probably most heated in the field of philosophy of science where reductionists argue that all of life can be explained by or can be reduced to physical material properties and functions. Um, So in the popular form, we know that as scientific materialism. Um, That intellectual habit, that tendency to reduce every aspect of life to a single explanatory cause uh, finds applications in all sorts of different ways fields. Um, I ran into it head-on in my graduate studies in history. Um, I went to a, a graduate program that attracted folks from some of the most prestigious uh, undergraduate institutions of the country, and I recall vividly uh, one night sitting in a graduate seminar where we were working through a Reformation-era text and seeking to understand what motivated a certain group of men and women to respond to Martin Luther's gospel message uh, the way they did. So I was sitting between I guess he was on the side of me, a guy who went to Berkeley and a woman who went to Harvard. And I remember being immensely grateful that evening for my Covenant College education, um, not only because it had prepared me well for the rigors of graduate school. Um, I've been just as well prepared as those folks to read and write and research and speak, those kinds of things, but also because Covenant had instilled in me a disposition um, to look for multiple causes, uh, to consider the possibility that there might be more than one factor explaining human actions, um, not to reduce every problem to a single, simple explanation. Um, And it taught me that sometimes those factors might even seem to be at odds with one another. Um, And having that sort of intellectual habit or framework uh, made me better prepared than my colleagues in graduate school. Uh, For some of my fellow graduate students, it was impossible to conceive that men and women of the 16th century might have made the decisions that they did um, for reasons that weren't simply economic or simply political uh, or simply social or simply cultural. Uh, the notion that people might do something because they really believed, uh, because of a deeply held faith or sincere uh, religious convictions, theological convictions, that was utterly foreign to my fellow grad students. Um, in their view, that was all smoke and mirrors. Uh, people really did things out of economic motivations or really did things out of political motivations or. Uh, what have you. So one of the real blessings of my covenant college education um, an education that was grounded in biblical truth was that it necessitated that I acknowledge the complexity of human motivation uh, that men and women created in God's image and also fractured by the fall, act on the basis of mixed motives, uh, both and. Uh, I'm sure you all remember Paul wrestles with this in Romans seven when he laments that the good that he would do uh, he does not do while the things, he wishes he wouldn't do, he does do. Uh, human beings are complex creatures and we behave at times out of mixed motives. Uh, for example, we might pursue a career not out of economic gain, uh, but out of a sense of religious calling, but also maybe because there's a little bit of social pressure. Or we might pursue a, a career out of a sense of calling uh, in spite of social expectations, but also because it's economically beneficial. We're complicated beings. Um, and the various combinations are, are manifold with this us, within us. And I'm Not delving into the complexities of human motivation in the little bit of time that I have left. But what I do want to say is that ever since my days in that graduate seminar, um, I've been especially grateful for an education that pushed me to consider the implications of my faith for my academic work, and in particular for an education that required me to accept, on the basis of biblical truth, that the answers to life's big questions aren't always simple. Uh, The nature of the truth that we know as Christians forces us to accept. There's often more than one angle on an issue, and that quick jumps to simple solutions aren't always helpful in arriving at the truth. Um, here's how historian Mark Knoll sums it up. He writes, Christian scholars, and this would be true for Christians in general, who take to heart the Chalcedonian doctrine about divine and, the divine and human present in one integrated person should be predisposed to seek knowledge about particular matters from more than one angle he goes on, to acknowledge, or, you know, goes on to add that this is so because Scripture recognizes, quote, multiple legitimate skeins of cause and effect to explain single human actions. As Christians, as those subject to the truth of God's word, and as those who encountered and are encountering uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, in whom all things hold together, uh, we have to embrace these both ands both those that we find in Scripture and those we find in the world around us. As we take up uh, that charge to be willing to hold together seemingly contradictory propositions, um, it will be worth our while to reflect on the glory and the majesty and the power of a God who holds apparent contradictions together, uh, who's so much bigger and wiser and more sophisticated than we are uh, that we can't comprehend His nature. He's a God of unfathomable mystery, and yet He also chooses to reveal Himself to us. Uh, He's a God whom we can't know on our own, and yet he chooses to make himself known to us. He is pure and simple in his holiness, and yet so complex and immense that he cannot be grasped by the minds of men. Um, This is the God we serve, the same God who's redeemed us, who's sanctifying us, and who promises in Scripture that he is reconciling all things to himself. And he's called us as those who bear his image and have been enlivened by his spirit uh, to see the rich complexities in the world that he's created, not to be satisfied with simplistic or reductionistic solutions. He's called us to embrace uh, both ends. Um, for course, he says in Jeremiah chapter 37, uh, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, marvel at and are grateful for Uh, the mysteries of your truths. We pray that you would humble us and uh, make us bold and confident uh, to accept the complexities uh, of reality. Uh, Give us faith, Father, and keep us faithful. We ask in the name of the one uh, who is both God and man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.